0: G'day guys and welcome to the third episode of Caleb's Conversation Podcast. Today I've got Joshua Fern on with me and uh, you are a video editor and you have worked on projects such as Isaac Butterfield's uh, YouTube videos and one of the big topics that we're going to be talking with you today is uh, you worked on as the editor of the short film Love Club uh, made at the uh, GFS uh, Griffith Film School uh, Graduate Slate. Um, So I'm interested to get your perspective on what it's like being an editor um, and going through last year, what was a very interesting year with regards to filmmaking. So uh, yeah. um, as an editor, what do you think is the most important part um, of being an editor?
1: Most important part of being an editor? That's a, that is a tough question. I'd have to say, hmm, off the top of my head, probably being able to sit down with your director and go through everything and be able to find out what's good, what's bad. So it enables you to, well, one, establish a connection with your director. So then, once you're in the suite with them for, oh, ten, twelve hours, half, once you get to the delirium stage, you know how you work and how your connection is going to be because it enables you to get in touch with them. It also allows you to keep your head because you know what's on the table in front of you. So it allows you to process and put it on the, put it down onto the cutting from floor and be like, hey, so this shot here, I like it, but it just doesn't work. And then you go back and forth to the director and she can go, oh, but I like it. It's like, it doesn't really work. There's a whole bunch, but yeah. You're- yeah, the relationship
0: between a director and editor, I think is very important. And uh, obviously the director of said project was Anna McGuckin, who um, I think both we can agree <laughs> is a very talented person. And oh, we're yeah. very interested to see her career continue on. Um, but Love Club is a short film, 15 minute short film, and um, that was made last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, just want to tell us a little bit about what the film is about and uh, and uh, yeah, what it's about.
1: Okay, so Love Club is about a girl called Luce. And she's going through some tough stuff that you learn about throughout the film. And she's uh, going along with the, on the adventure is with her friend. I'll give you a second. Sarah. Sarah, yep. Sarah. And also goes to the Love Club, which is... But on the the name of the film,
0: because they go to like a basic like a, a therapy club, right?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a therapy club. Just don't remember old mate's name who's who runs it all. He's this. He's a great character, and he plays somewhat of a major role in helping loose understand. But that's something because like trying to go through the regular avenues of therapy doesn't really work out for how loose want how loose wants it to go, because she's thinking, oh, I don't need help. I'm fine. But then once her friend tries to like reach out and get help from other friends things start to unravel mm. as you find as we find out in the film which I'm not sure if we're, are we allowed to go into spoilers here but um
0: I well, I was going to say for those who are wondering at home um, I'll say I'm going to have a link in the description to um, where you can access all the films that were made in the 2020 uh, Griffith graduate slate and uh, I'll have the password and stuff for that cuz it is password protected um, but yeah you guys can check that out feel free to look up love club um, through that, but yeah, I reckon we can go into some minor spoilers and stuff because I think the main plot element to this film that makes it so emotional, I feel like, is the fact that yeah, Luce was sexually assaulted, and that's yeah. really what drives her personal journey, which I think was really uh, one of the strongest elements of the film.
1: Yeah, we we don't really hint that, but we don't really hint it in the film until of course we have we hit them with the sledgehammer and we have her ex boyfriend, Tom, just be like. Just dump it on them. Oh, it's not, not Tom, sorry. Um, that's that's from a different film that we also made together, and the same crew. But the ex-boyfriend comes into the fruit shop buying fruit, and then it all turns into this kind of awkward situation because he's been trying to reach out throughout the film to just talk. Because for all we know, that they broke up, and he wants to talk again. So once you, when you get to that point in the film, you learn that ah, he didn't. It wasn't like they broke up because he was a bad boyfriend. They broke up simply just due to the fact that she was going through some things and she just didn't think and she just in the spare of the moment broke up and she wants to try and get through it on her own but in the end we need to she, he couldn't just reach there and gets to this stalemate where they both end up going separate ways but in a sort of like negative ending because he ends up bringing up you were, you were raped and then just sits there. In, you sit there in that silence and go man
0: ow yeah it's definitely hard hitting yeah. yeah and
1: then we and then he walks out and then we li- then we're left with Sarah going back to talk to me me uh, loose me up with Sarah back at the house and Sarah being confronted about trying to reach out to the ex and getting help because well that's what she thought would be the best way of getting help because she's not talking to Sarah about what her problem is mm. she's like I'm fine it's nothing I'll I'll, I'll see my own help but no yeah, that's
0: one of the biggest things when anyone goes through any sort of trauma is just being able to accept what's happened and then deal with it in your own personal way. And yeah. that way is different for everyone. And yeah, I, I thought the performance um, that Jade um, Jade Pichel, oh yeah, man. was really, really, really powerful.
1: She she earned that she earned that award. Man. Yeah. Uh, I met, actually funny story about that. I met her. Uh, I think it was year two during. I think it was documentary or. Was, so I was like, start of last of second year, we um, we doing that exercise. I'm not sure if you remember it. The Han Solo and yes. Greedo reshoot, like in a new setting. Mm-hmm. She was the uh, she was the Han Solo in our in our act, and I was like, wait a minute. Oh, so cool. I my on my phone. I was like, took notes of the actors we had because they were pretty good. There was a guy called Callum, and then there was Jade. and I was like, holy, <laughs> moly. Oh. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'll I say, yeah. She's she's very very talented. And just to give some context with regards to one of the exercises that we did. Um, in one of our courses at uni was we took the classic cantina scene with Han Solo and Greedo from the original Star Wars and uh, repurposed it and uh, basically had two different (laughs) actors and we had to change the context of the scene um, to fit basically a a new story that we were making, even though it was the same dialogue and everything. Yeah. And uh, like you said, yeah, she was a part of that and uh, helped out and was uh, very helpful, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: Because that's
0: one of the things with um, working at a film school and... um, Having actors come on board is that it's all volunteer work. Yeah, uh, we're not allowed to pay the actors because otherwise, you know, insurance gets involved, and it's all a big, big issue. The only way you
1: can pay them is by paying for like their food and then their amenities, yeah. and also like maybe covering their transport costs. But you can't like physically give them money or transfer money, and say "Hey, so thanks for coming today. Here's like twenty bucks," because then you end up getting into the legality of like, "Oh, is this paid work?" and then it goes. All that jazz, but Mm. it's almost
0: like compensation. Like, you'll get we're giving you like food and stuff to be a part of our project. And what I think is really beneficial about this process is that people who come through um, film school and stuff, we're trying to learn and make uh, the most out of our time at film school and really get a good sense of how filmmaking happens and practice all our skills that we've been learning in a classroom. And uh, the way for actors to do that is they can go to an acting school or you know, practice acting in their own time. But a good way for them to practice being on set in that environment is to get involved with student productions. So I think it's a great uh, symbiotic relationship that actors and then people at film school have of kind of collaborating and then bringing actors on board to play these characters that we have invented invented, um, from script and then get to see it on screen. Yeah. Um, So it's it's definitely one of those cool things of – because like the acting community in Brisbane – in Australia is is quite small, oh, yeah. um, but there's plenty of <clears throat> gems out there. So when you find them, it's like it's, thank you so much for being on board. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's a big shame about that actually, because uh, Jade herself, uh, as we were get as we were doing Love Club, she was one of the ways of her getting herself status because she's going to Canada to pursue her acting career because Australia is well very small pool, and yes. usually most all the good actors get taken get picked up by Hollywood and get taken away. Mm-hmm. So most people who are just like that will take the opportunity to just go where the go where the opportunity is which in this case Canada America basically North America film is film in Europe and America is basically big so she's going there and yet why the middle bit, bit of behind the scenes news um for the scene ending where she's talking and talking to the group slash the mirror mm-hmm. she how she was getting herself to be that emotionally charged was because she was telling herself what she's going to miss when she's in Canada. Ah. So she every time, so every a new take, she'd say, "I'm gonna miss this when I'm in Canada. I'm gonna miss this in Canada." And it was like, man, it was actually felt really bad being in the room. And uh when she was going through that, because it's just like it's raw, and you're like, oh, don't, "Should we be? Should we be filming this? This is like some personal stuff. This yeah. is someone like just o- feeling like someone just opening up about themselves. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't want to be here." And in the end, like going through it uh, in the edit, I was like, Sigh. I had initially my, the cut. I always, I knew when I saw it, I was like, I'm keeping it on the single shot until the end when I have to reveal the mirror. But it went through a little bit of evolution with the the mirror being revealed earlier, which ended up being a bad idea because it was just well, like- I was to
0: say, yeah, that reveal at the end is very powerful. Yeah. And it really puts a pin on the top at the end of the film of like, yeah. it really encapsulates what the story is about. It was,
1: Oh, it was good. It was good about that, but it was the only thing that changed was because when she says "just you," the second the "you" finished, it, would, it was going to be revealed to the mirror, and we, and as we we're seeing down, me, Anna, Frey were we'll like, "Yeah, we Nisqy's to go back. Need to let it sit there until this surprise." But yeah, that was that's that was a very interesting thing. But yeah, she was amazing, and we can't I can't discount Ruby either. She's obviously on Freddie as well. She's on a few. Yeah. I'll see. I'll see. Again, I'll... another
0: very talented actress that's been uh very, uh, she's definitely done a lot of volunteering on a lot of Griffith projects. And uh, yeah, she's again, one to look out for in the, in the future.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, don't mean to, ba- not, not going not gonna to bad enough, Freddie, because Freddie's a good film, but I think to say, don't mean to, to, to uh, was it toot our own horn, but I think we better utilize her as an actress because Freddie, she doesn't get as much screen time and initially I thought she was like a mother figure because of the way she's dressed but it turns out she's just a sister mm-hmm. and I didn't know that until I think uh, was it was because we I got a sneak preview halfway through the cutting process because Aiden was like oh come check out this scene it was out uh, that it was Talia at the time who's the director mm. as you know yeah but to anyone at home but yeah it was like she, we got to sit down watch the dinner scene before it all came together the scene didn't change much in the final cut I think it was basically the same but when I watched it I was like so is she like the mother or something but Nah, she's he's real, she's good at pretty much anything. She's been in grad slate, and oh uh, man. But yeah, it's funny you actually mentioned
0: that because I think that's a very difficult thing that a lot of short films struggle with is is in in getting these characters and then giving them an arc and making sure that all the relationships are clearly defined between all the other characters that are involved in the in the scene or in the story. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the things that I want to jump on with Love Club is I feel like. This is a very personal story that focuses on this woman who has suffered from a very serious sexual assault and is coming to terms with that and is living in the reality of the world that is not pleasant. And by the end of the story, we have this very clear, defined arc that ends very powerfully and very emotional, and it's very satisfying. Like you said, when you get to that moment of the reveal of the mirror, which I loved. And it's, it's one of those stories, like, I think... Like what was the reason that you kind of drew you to the project? Was it working with Anna? Was there a specific relationship that you wanted to d- develop there? Or was it something in the story that kind of uh, drew your eye?
1: Uh, what you read at Love Club was, uh, it was back in End of end of Ante, we'd um, got a little squared away, had the screenings and what have you. And then it was, I think it was Anna's birthday. And we were at Netherworld in, in the Valley. And she was and she was off her chops and she was like, well, you want to work on my grad slate? And I was like, yeah, sure. It was fun this time. So I was like, I'll sign on for your project. And I was like, well, at that point, nothing had really been hashed out at all. It's October of like 2019, but having drinks at world. no one's really talking about the next grad slate. But she's out here recruiting because like, that's like a drunk thing. She's just yeah. like, I'm going to come in here. I'm going to basically strong arm and like come join my film. And then yeah, the next day, she was like, just in case you were worried, just in case I was forcing you. Are you sure you want to be on my film? I was like, yeah, sure. I'll join on. It was fun. But Yeah. Once I learned about what Actually Love Club was, I was like, yeah, made a good choice here.
0: So I have a question with regards to editing because obviously editing has been something that you've been working on and and refining your skills throughout your time at film school. Oh, yeah. Um, What do you think are some of the fundamental things that every editor needs to know? um, Just because if anyone's out there listening who is an interest in editing and wants to know a bit more about the process, what do you think are the key things that they need to know about editing with regards to a filmmaking uh, process?
1: Well first you you need to love what, you need to love what you do cuz it's a la- it's a laborious process cuz first you got to go through everything all the footage and that can be a day in itself and if you aren't ready to sit down and watch footage for hours on end that to at the moment makes no sense cuz it's out of order then you're not going to be able to have fun with it it's a process that you kind of like get into it's like for me personally I wanted to get into editing cuz I got into it I was like I enjoyed watching YouTube videos and mainly like it's a bit. Every time I say it out loud, it's a bit cringy. But like the old like Phase Clan sniper montages where it's oh like, yeah, I know what you t- mean. Yeah, edited to the edited to the beat and it's like man, this thing flows. It's great to watch and it's like man, I want to do that. So I, if you if you yourself like watching YouTube and or like making YouTube videos for fun, then that's probably the best way to get to be get started in that mindset of you'll enjoy what you you'll love what you do. But another thing about being an editor is you have to like be able to at least be sociable and understanding of your director's vision because editors end up shaping their vision and with your and if you come in there with your idea of how you want it to turn out and director as a different one you're just gonna butt heads unless you manage to talk it out with your director because your director is like the one that has the ideas but you can say that's cool but hear me out and then you need to tell them their idea your idea and you can see if it works out so you trial it out and if it doesn't work then it's a good, good process because you can just like l- literally figure out your problem on the spot there because it's like you because she has a, if, you, if you have your idea and they have theirs you try theirs then you try the, yours and you get the producer coming and you can go break, break, break this tie for us and you can find out but mm. yeah so TLDR establish good relationships and love and love what you do otherwise it's not going to be a fun time for you in this week because unfortunately as an editor you do have to talk to the head crew Producers, directors, and maybe even Conti, if they didn't, weren't doing their job right. And it's like a case of you got to basically be at least moderately sociable. You can't just come in there headstrong. You got to be willing to work as a team because that's
0: you got to have that collaborative nature. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like film in a nutshell is you got to you got to work with people, and if you can't work with people, then the film industry really isn't for you. Because <laughs> unfortunately, there's no such thing as a director, producer, scriptwriter, cinematographer, and uh, editor unless you're like making YouTube skits but even then they still have help from like friends when you get when you get big enough like the guy I know who I follow religiously is a guy called like Brandon Rogers he doesn't he doesn't shoot his own films but he stars in them he writes his own script. he writes his skits and he has his mate starring it as well and it's over the top but obviously it's a sort of a production process next to his own little like indie TV show on American cable but Everything he does is like a labor, is, is a true labor of love, because not he doesn't like pump out a video a day and and like drown you with content. It's a case of like it'll be like weeks between like skits coming out, or other YouTubers who like do long form documentaries. Like there's a guy called Ahoy, man. Uh, he puts in like vector, vector graphics and everything, but yeah, it's all a labor of love is editing, because it's take it's gonna take a long time, and also uh, fun to everyone. The first cut always sucks. Because I was actually thinking about that day like, around Love Club. Thinking about the first cut, it was about 25 minutes long. Possibly, I think it was like close to 30-ish, 20 or 28. And it was, oh God, it was terrible. Just thinking about it, looking back at it, I was like, we had so much stuff in here that didn't need to end up being. We had therapists. at the We opened for about two minutes of like therapy scenes. And then we had a meeting with uh, Leslie, who is the character who sits to the left of Loose, during her, her first meeting and she's one that says no phones allowed babe. Mm-hmm. She was going to she had lines during the second scene that we also cut because she was just too silly for what we were going for in the end. And also we had an entire scene with her where they talk about like dealing with your shit. It wasn't a bad scene, but it went on for too long, didn't really add anything, and we fixed it by replacing it with a much better scene with Sam meeting her in the car park in her car and they and they have that confrontation there where they talk about why aren't you talking to me? why I help you, et cetera, et cetera, which is a much better way to come together and also more shots of the Tarana is always nice.
0: Mm, absolutely. The analogy I use with regards to editing is it's very much so putting a puzzle together. Oh You yeah. have this massive canvas with all these puzzle pieces and you as the editor have to find all the right puzzle pieces. You need to get the edges, of course. So you yep. need to make sure you've got your characters, your story, Um Basic plot lines. Once you've got the foundation, then you slowly go through the various shots that the cinematographer has captured for you, yeah. And you slowly put together that puzzle. And hopefully, um, assuming everyone on set has done their job correctly, you as the <laughs> editor can get a lovely canvas, put it together, and uh, then at the very end, you've got God. a very nice project to watch at the end.
1: It's, uh, would you agree with that? Oh yeah. I a different now. I I, would, I, I don't. Use, I don't call that a puzzle. I usually just call it like I bring that. I bring that vision to life, and I put the no, I end up building their building their it's it a puzzle in the end but it's like building their dream because what they envision I'm in charge of putting that together for them with my own little twist mm. so it's a very good pretty much the best analogy you can do and yeah, when everyone works together and it all comes together it's great but unfortunately as we're students not everyone's at the top of the at the top of their game like for example we had our sound recordist I'm not going to name her because I don't want to have to deal with that, but it's like a case. We of, don't need to call cool anyone out. Yeah. No. Oh, it was a night. She she was a bit bull, she was a bit bullheaded because uh, she'd worked on I think grad slates here before, so she'd come into this whole thing a little bit headstrong. And she, and with Zali, who's our sound designer and was also the recordist and designer for Auntie, did a, she did an amazing job then. Um, she she came to she came she came to our sound and was like, hey. Maybe we should uh, do X Y Z thing, and she just like snapped at her, and then made Zali like not want to approach her again because she didn't want because Zali is very non confrontational. She's very like timid, but she's a, she's lovely, great person. we Would work with her again, but yeah, she didn't want to approach her and it just basically caused a lot of issues in post because the sound the sound recording wasn't the best and and put a, put a lot of strain on Zali and because she had to clean it up and she did. She she puts in so much work, like she deserves like everything that ever comes for like jobs and whatnot. Cause she's amazing. I can't give enough praise. Cause if I do, we'll be here for like five hours. <laughs> but yeah, in, in the end it was just like, they just weren't working together. And that's very pivotal cause that's sound. And as you know, you can have mediocre visuals, but great sound. Cause like there was that, I think it was the year one. They showed us that film that was shot on an iPhone and sent like yep. in South, in California it was, like shot on an iPhone but recorded with like proper sound gear, so it was good. But if a film looks good but sounds bad, you know, Mm. and you can't unnotice it. Yes,
0: you're 100% right, because that's such a key thing that I found very interesting in my first year at uni was learning this idea of sound takes up a very large proportion of the film. And like you said, if you have bad sound, so many people are just like, I ain't watching this. I just (laughs) just turn it (laughs) off. Whereas you can have some pretty shoddy you know, cinematography that isn't really great, yeah. but you can still get away with it. Like a good example is um the U.S. version of The Office. Oh that yeah, has, <laughs> and a lot of those type of sitcoms and stuff, right? They're very much those with crash zooms and and funny pans and stuff. And the framing might not be perfect, or sometimes the camera might be a bit jolty. Obviously, that's purposeful yeah. based on what the show is. But that's a good example of the cinematography not being perfect or not being very clean. But because obviously the rest of the show is so well made and the audio is good. You still watch it and enjoy it because it's obviously off a high quality show. Yeah. But again, it's a like one thing of if the if you had bad cine and good sound, you can still watch it because it's still enjoyable if the story and characters are good. Yeah. But if you have bad sound, you could have the best story to ever grace this planet, and most people will still check out because it's just it's just just it's very uh, what's the word disorientating. Oh and yeah. It's just very distracting, and yeah, once you kind of get in that zone of this needs to be fixed. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're in. a sound designer comes in and works closely with an editor to make sure that we've got all the right assets to um to put yeah. in and and make sure that the sound design is nice and uh, fluid and and sounds realistic for what the story it's is. It's also
1: quite pivotal that you have, you work along the sound design because for uh, Love Club we had scenes that were cut to music like the bike scene that's cut on on the beats because we had the, we need to find the right track for that and we had this. It's a very. It's actually a, the a whole funny story behind that bike. scene. I'll get into that later. But the sound design. Uh, we had Zali come in. We were like sampling like different tracks and whatnot. and We found this one. This uh, track. I forgot the original track because we re-recorded it like so we wouldn't get done for uh, copyright copy away. infringement. Yeah. Yep. So we, she recorded it with like her boyfriend Jason, who's also really good at what he does. He um. They all went and re recorded these things, but we needed them to work with us so we could find out the tune for. The scene that we're going to use for the song we're going to use for the opening, which is end up being the song we use at the end, kind of like the whole brings it all together, the journey. And then we have the piece during the second meeting with Rick at the meeting where they sit in the mirror, talk about the things they had about themselves. We needed music for that. That got changed uh, throughout the process. It was <laughs> uh, it was a very when I when we picture locked, it was a. Like up, it was a very upbeaty track. It was, but which then obscured as the film it was like do 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 do. And I was like, looking back at it, I was like, that definitely would have uh, ruined the film. Like if we didn't fit the vibe, it, yeah, absolutely not. But yeah, with the, with the way it is now, which I had no input in because I agreed, I agreed that yeah we need to change it. And then because I locked it and I wasn't able to come in to do the edit, they made some, they did the minor changes that needed need to be done. And I was like, that's fine because Freya herself looks like a little bit of an editor when she's not. Uh, doing everything else under the sun to be on top of her game as a producer Mm. but yeah that was a very well, I want to
0: expand on that actually. So just so we can get a good idea of the post-production workflow. So once obviously shooting is done and you've gone through principal photography, um, obviously you then transition into the editing phase. Let's just go through um, the various levels of post-production because obviously that's something you as an editor and someone who works as a post-production supervisor obviously <laughs> knows um, oh. the various levels of post-production. So where is the, what's the first thing that happens as soon as we transition from production into post-production?
1: Well, first thing that happens is you obviously get the rushes. Then, if your computer can't handle handle the footage, you got to make proxies because unfortunately, not everyone can handle watching 4K, 3K, UHD, buddy, footage at at frame at full frame rate. So you got to proxy that into 1080 so you can work with it on most devices. hence they say use it for the computers, because some of them can run it fine at raw footage. But if you do but if you get the one that's unlucky, then you're running through it like. J- janky as frame rates, so you gotta get your proxies done. That's your first one. As an, but op- it's also optional if your computer can handle it. Um, then the next phase is you gotta watch it all. So uh, per day, if you shoot per day, you get the rushes. You would bring, you would ingest those, and then you would watch it through. And you would obviously mark your print takes and make sure you make sure everything on a timeline. Never delete anything unless it's like a false take. Then of course it's a false take. You don't need that anymore. But obviously keep your camera logs there so you can find out which ones will be the false takes. Mm-hmm. Then after that, you, after you've watched it through, then you can begin assembling like in the order it's meant to be done. So like... So is, an assembly
0: edit, right? Where you get you can, every single shot chronologically as it's um, happening throughout the story, right?
1: Yeah, basically. You get everything all into its scenes like your scene one, scene two because my workflow is I put everything into, into like their own little bins. So I'll put scene one into its own bin and then I'll know that that goes into there because... You can, you can always like do it by days, but I'll have to go a little bit deeper because I'm a bit, little bit special in the head. Like I've got to keep it super organized, otherwise it's going to be out of whack and I'm going to not be able to find it and I'm going to be really annoyed that I can't find this one exact shot because I deleted it because it wasn't good for the edit, but now I need it back. and yeah. Well, that's a very
0: important thing is um, obviously having a very uh, neat and tidy workflow so that you know where everything is yeah. can easily access stuff and it's a very... Uh, smooth process because obviously you work in Adobe Premiere Pro, correct?
1: Yeah, I, I work in, work in a, uh, Premiere Pro, uh, Dash Da DaVinci and mm. haven't really touched Avid since we did it, since I touched it in second year because although it was good, I'm not going to pay that uh, premium price tag unless mm. work will cover it for me and I don't think work's going to pay the $600 licensing fee for me to use a program that can be, that can be done in Premiere. Although not as like fine-tuned because Avid is made just to be an editing program. It's not made to do basic... Uh, effects work, color correction, all that. It's just basically made to you take it from avid to maybe you want to go for your post production flow. But yeah, Premiere.
0: Yeah, Premiere Pro is a good all round software that has a bit of everything and does it really well. So, because um, I know it's again the highest of quality with regards to industry standards. So yeah. Um, obviously, so now once you've got the assembly edit and you've um looked at all the rushes and everything, that's when you start going into a, a rough cut, right? So that what's that process like?
1: because uh, well, obviously
0: as an editor, you're trying to figure out this puzzle and put it all yeah. together. But like you said, sometimes it can be very bloated and scenes cannot work in a way that you expect. <laughs> so what's it like when you were going through uh, Love Club and editing it together? What were some of the things that you were like, okay, this process needs to be refined. This scene needs to work better. What's that rough cut, rough, rough cut process like?
1: Well, it's first, so the assembly obviously is you follow the script. So uh, always make sure you have the assembly done because you go, okay, so this is what the script says. So you can find out what worked in the script and what didn't because then you can go, you watch it through with your director, you both go, okay, so that didn't work, that didn't work, that's not too bad, that's not too bad and then we keep going from there but so once you get the assembly, you sit in with your director, you watch it through, you find out what didn't work and you chop those bits off and then you start mildly refining it But because if you, you can't put too much effort into a rough cut because if you do that, well, you're wasting time because you might end up with a drastically different uh, film in the end because with ours, uh, some of our things changed. Like like I said, the Leslie scene got cut and got, and there was a second scene after that where she where she goes home, she caught a ride with Leslie, back to the house and that's when we have the loose Sarah conversation about why aren't you talking to me about that on the steps of the house? So we decided to cut that and it, uh, those two scenes and read through that as the scene at the front of the of her being picked up by Sarah. And that was that was a good change. But we didn't know that until uh, we got to the point of reshoots because we weren't sure what was working. And But we knew that the, the therapists at the beginning, we couldn't clearly define that they were therapists because we had three different sets that were well-designed by our set design. Of, yeah, it was it, amazing production uh,
0: design, yeah.
1: Yeah, we, uh, Millie, Livia, and who was the third one? It was the third one that was also involved. And also Dash of Riley, who was on like every project. Shout out to my boy Riley uh but yeah it was like just all that work went down the drain because we just were like it just doesn't work in the film because we wanted to keep them because they they weren't bad it's just for the story it added nothing compared to what it is now it's like off the bat we have this new way that's all gone and it's tells the story much better we don't need to worry about therapists because it didn't really add anything and uh, Mm. well that's a
0: very important part of the process is you get all this footage and stuff and sometimes the scenes are really good on paper but oh, yeah. once you get a performance and you get the various shots sometimes it just doesn't work and i feel like as a director that's probably one of the hardest things to deal with is you have this amazing scene that is so well performed or uh, so well shot but it just doesn't work when you're trying to focus on the story and And story is key always the story is always the priority um, you can have an amazing performance or some beautiful shots, yeah. but as long as the story is is serviced first, and I feel like as an editor, you have that very <laughs> tough decision sometimes of like, yeah. oh, we have to cut this, we can't use this, we've got to use that. And that's, again, one of the p- part of the process of really kind of fine-tuning um, everything that you've received. And then you mentioned uh, reshoots, obviously. Um, once you've gone through principal photography, then you go into the edit, do a few rough cuts, and then that's when you kind of see, okay, we need this puzzle piece, all right, we need this yep. shot. Uh, that's when you go into reshoots and then pick up those things um, in order to help yeah. improve the story.
1: It was a very big thing about that because with our reshoots, we uh, and reshoots
0: are a perfectly normal process. Oh, like yeah. I've heard you know, previously um, with like some big Hollywood films, like once they announce that they're going into reshoots, a lot of people who aren't very familiar with the filmmaking process are like, "Oh, sh- clearly the film's shit. They're trying to fix it. <laughs> like you know, they've got to go to reshoots and film it all again." It's like no. Um, that's when you get into that stage of the editing process where you're like, okay, we need to change this, we need to slightly improve this, and then fine-tune it. So reshoots are a completely natural thing I, in I the industry. I will say
1: about that uh, whole mindset where everyone's like dogpiling on a film, it can be valid. Like, let's just say a film was meant to come out, let's say like April, and then they're doing reshoots in like February. You're pushing it very close for your production, for, your pro- for post-pod to get that all squared away with like sound design, uh, and, and obviously the edit coming together in three months because... Unfortunately, the process with the uh, film, it, you can't build it in a day. And if you do, it's not going to be good. Unless you're making like a five minute YouTube video or like a skit you've done. A film is not, uh, even a short film. Like Love Club took us, uh, when did I, I locked in October. We started doing it uh, August ish. took us about a couple months. And those were, in the in the early days, it was like sort of like, oh, it's been about five, six hours doing that per day. And then we we'll start getting into the back end of the process. So once you, get, once you get past the reshoot stage, you get into your more fine cut process. Mm-hmm. That's going to start taking you about oh, eight, nine, 10, possibly 12 hours. You could, you could be in there. It's, it's the beauty of the editing suite. You won't know because the ones in the film school, shout out to film school for being a quality, quality place to learn for film. Um, you, the suites, you don't know what time of day it is. All you know is you see light and that's it. So it just, you can go, oh, I'll come in here at like 9 a.m. And then you walk out, it's like, wait, where'd the sun go? <laughs> and it's just because it's you don't know what time it is. And that's the beauty of it because at home, I have a window. So I can tell when the sun's going down. It's like, oh, okay. So it's time to go have dinner, can talk off and whatnot. But when I'm in the suite, I'm like in the zone. So I, I don't really... It's a weird like kind of zen I get into. It's like, I don't feel hungry. I don't want to eat anything. I'm just here to work. And then Anna's worrying like, oh, you should eat something. And I was like, no, nah, I'm fine. I got water. It's fine. Just keep me hydrated. And have then... you
0: seen that movie Soul on Disney Plus? I have, yeah. So you're in the zone. You're... <laughs> it, it, literally, okay.
1: yeah. Soul's, Soul's pretty good. I don't, I'm not sure how I probably feel about it because I've heard like a lot of people say, it's it's good and it's bad. But I was like, eh, I didn't mind it. It was the, the aspects that worked and I just thought, should be right. It's not, it's not a bad film. I thought it was a good film, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, so to jump on back on the editing process, um, obviously, so once you've got those reshoots in uh, and you start to go into the final cut, um, what are some of the things that you need to make sure are refined before you go into the sound design process?
1: Well, first of all, you need your cuts to be refined because when you get to sound design and once you picture lock, you can't change anything because I'm.
0: Yeah, because that's a very key thing. So once the edit is done and your final cut is locked off and it's been approved by the director, producer, whoever. Yep. Um, yeah, that's when you kind of say, uh,
1: "That's what I, I'm that's done. Yeah. And then you kind of walk yep. back into the shadows and
0: say, all right, sound designers, go from there.
1: Go, go nuts. But the case of like, you, can't, once you get to that stage, like you need to make sure that everything is as fine as it can be. Because if you had any doubts, like if you're like, oh, we should have done this or I should have done that. You should have you know, hash it out before you lock. Because if you, if you lock... And it's not great, and you and you refine it. You can't. We're not able to do that unless you like collaborate with your sound designer. But if you've like done a montage to music that your sound designers got squared away, they're all ready to do. And you go, oh, I'm gonna do this, and you change rapidly change it on them. You throw, you throw a spanner in the works for them. It's like a domino effect, and then you have this angry sound designer getting mad at you for not telling them about the change you made after you've locked and they're working on it because you can't sound design while working on a project because. If you ever do that, you're an idiot because it's a case of once it's underway and it's going through the whole process of you got to make the film in the rough assembly, rough, uh, rough, less rough, uh, fine, and obviously finished up. You don't sound design, you, so you sit there listening to the raw audio. And for me, I got so used to that I was like, man, I can't wait to hear the actual things. I'm so I'm just so like used to just hearing it how it came out and how it was recorded, whether it be the the scratch audio or the Basic audio without any refinements done to it, so you're not ready to hear the uh, was it the effort put in to make it sound much better. But yeah, the sound designer once you, once you've locked it, you send it off to them and it's happy days. But montages are your big one. So if you have ever seen that's built heavily around like choreograph done to audio, uh, shout out to Baby Driver. Uh,
0: Great movie, yeah. Uh,
1: but yeah, just mute. if you've seen it's built around music, you need to make sure those are pristine, like fine edges, like. Smooth. Otherwise, it's going to be a case of you're going to have people being angry at you for that. Because for you- those slight changes, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: That's where communication is very important and it's an essential element of filmmaking is having everyone on the same page so that you can all get on the train and move along the track um, at a steady pace. And yeah. if you can do that, then that's when... Uh, I feel like all the cogs are turning and it's nice and smooth. But then, like you said, when you throw a spanner into the works, that cog gets caught up and then mm-hmm. it's like, that's how when the train can easily fall apart. Communica- so again, communication, communication is a huge communication's thing.
1: the key to most things in life, honestly.
0: No, I, I don't disagree <laughs> with that at all. Um, so obviously once the sound design is done and that's all um, finished up, you, you then get the film kind of oh, p- picture, sound yeah. locked, uh, and then you kind of get it ready for distribution. So um, once you kind of find out well, Once you see that the final product is ready to be viewed and you're ready to show it to people, um, what's that process like? Are you pretty scared about like seeing people like watch your work or are you excited to kind of share it with the world?
1: Uh, depends on what I'm showing it to because last year with Auntie, well, actually, sorry, two years ago now with Auntie, um, showed it to my family and they didn't understand it at all because like, the I think I'm the youngest in that group. There's me and my brother who are a year apart. And then we jump up to the next youngest, who is my uncle, who's like forty odd, and they didn't quite grasp the concept of what was in the film. So they watched it and didn't really like get along with it. But when we watched it at uh, West End with a whole cohort, and I heard people laughing along with where it was meant to be laughs, and I was like, man, this is great. But it's like when I show it to my family, I'm scared because like they don't understand, they don't understand the work. And I was like, fair to not target audience, but they were like, oh, it's a good work, it's good work, Josh. And I was like, yeah, but. You didn't it didn't really hit home with you unfortunately mm. so if you guys love club is a different story because the film the meaning isn't like super like based around this like young teen story like uh auntie was which uh what you love a,
0: club is very much like a like a kind of grounded drama
1: oh yeah it's we we play heavily into that into that aspect was like anyone can like associate with it as long as you like have empathy <laughs> so as long as you are human you might understand the whole post of my love club and how it can be this. Of course, yeah. yeah. So it was much different to Auntie, and I was like, not as scared for what my family to watch it because they came with me to the screen and it was like they actually enjoyed it a bit better because they knew some of it. My Auntie, I think she missed some of the elements, but eh, she'll get it on a second viewing like mm. most people do.
0: Well, that's the thing with, with filmmaking is like, I feel like, especially when you're either on set or. Um, you're working in the editing suites and stuff and you're so heavily involved with the making of the film mm-hmm. uh, I definitely f- uh, feel feel this and I'm interested to see if you feel the same but like when you've finally watched the final product because you know all the ins and outs of how the shot was conceived or the way it's edited together sometimes it's difficult to get a get immersed in the world and kind of enjoy the film for what it is yeah. uh, I don't know if you find that as well as the editor it's- is, that, is it easy to get back it's, into it, or is it's, it like... It's, oh, it's not as easy, because
1: I know how... Obviously, as an editor, you know how everything came together. But it's a case of like what I look forward to when I'm watching a film for the first time like as, that I've worked on. It's a case of, I've put it together, but this is without the color grade, the sound design. So it looks ugly, sounds ugly, but man, it cuts well. <laughs> so it's a case of, once you see that... I go in there going, I can't wait to hear, see how this all sounded and how it all came together, looking on the grade and whatnot. Cause we walked out of the, the suite and I wasn't super happy with how, uh, the end of the third therapy scene was cause she, cause in her exact words, uh, Jade looks like fucking bark <laughs> on, the, on the, on the, on the raw footage. And she, and I was like, it's not that bad. And then she was, we were applying like these like t- obviously templates in Premiere to see if anything would change. And obviously it looks much better now because Lockheed probably slaved over it to get it all to look as good as it does. And that's what I look forward to when I'm the editor because I'm, I I deal with the disgusting, like just raw footage. It's desaturated. It looks all right. You know, you know, it looks good because if you're on set and you watch it on like the, the split or on the camera, you go, oh, it's, that looks pretty good. Can't, hmm. wait, can't wait to work with that. But yeah, it's that's why I go, that's why I'm not too uh, hard to get back into it because I'm like, now I'm going to hear it. For a new perspective because I haven't heard it with a sound design I haven't seen it with this new coat of paint on it so you're able to get back into it a bit more like if you're the if you're doing the sound design it's probably a bit hard for you to get back into it because you've just you've seen the process of it coming up the only thing that's not uh, overly good for you would be if your film is like a very VFX based or something and you've got to like make sure you've really seen those but I'm not sure how that really works for a sound designer because like it's a case of I'm not sure if they see the effects done so they can do the sounds and whatnot for for it but well they probably have
0: like animatics and stuff and then kind of go off there and then the yeah. effects artists go and refine it from there
1: but yeah it's like so I was going to say like VFX heavy films probably a bit different story for sound designers but I think they probably have a harder turn it's getting back into like immersing in the film because they've been they've slaved over it to getting the sound editors alongside the footage so they haven't, they, they lose an element that I don't because I don't hear it with the sound design, but they obviously build it and they got to listen back to it. Hmm. And it's kind of like with the edit help, I could like almost be able to recite lines over and over, same with them. But difference being is they know when the music's happening, they know when this is going to happen, they know X, Y, Z thing. And they just, they're a little bit more in tune because they've been hearing more of it than I have because they got to slave over it. More to get rid of all that background noise and all the joys of student filmmaking.
0: Absolutely, that's one of the things that I find most fascinating. Because since my time at film school, and I would assume you would agree as well, it's definitely completely changed the way I watch movies now. Oh yeah. Like because I understand the craft and the various different techniques that are required in order to put things together, it's definitely changed the way that I look at you know a movie and sometimes it is difficult to kind of get into a movie and enjoy it for what it is because you can be like, oh, I can tell that the camera did this and the director's trying to accomplish this and all that was a cool edit sort of thing. But then again, what I love about movies and why it's my favorite art form is that sometimes when you're watching a great movie, you just get lost. You just get sucked into it, immersed in the story and then you just forget and you're just enjoying a great story with great characters and that's why I love going to the cinema and why I love love watching
1: movies. Exactly. It's like... If the only thing the only time I like tune back into a film like if my my I turn my I tend to try and turn my brain off from watching something because if I'm watching a film and it's like mediocre at best my my film brain kicks in and go ah oh, so there's there's the cut there good have admitted there the works not that great uh, x y z thing but if it's like if it's good I just I'm, I I I just disengage and just watch it as like a regular person be like man walk walk out of that and you go man that was good the way it was all. Pieced together, the edits were nice. The shots were well well paced. The sound design, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, I can definitely get that because film is just one of those art forms. Like film and TV, being able to put it all to onto a screen and basically uh, have audiences engage and be engaged by what you're doing is a different is a different experience because like it's hard to really put together. It's like music, you can kind of you can get lost in music as well. Like if it's a really good. Like let's just say listening to, listen to what was it the what the brand but listen to an album from a couple of days ago on the tram back from work and I was like man I could get lost in I could get lost in this track just like cruising down the highway just like blaring the speakers and just is it just because like obviously sound can set you in a different scene entirely hundred mm, percent yeah but yeah film it's definitely good of like films that take you away from like out of your world and into their world. it just immerses you and it's great because you just want to have like an hour and a half two hours out of your life just so you can like go be immersed in this world like anywhere like you could be teleported to outer space you could be teleported to 1955 and all that jazz wherever wherever the film's going if it's good it can take you there but if it's bad then well you just fall out of it unfortunately Mm. but yeah
0: it's the power of storytelling Obviously, 2020 was a, a very uh, crazy year for us all. Oh, um, yeah. And obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic put a, a lot of spanners in the work. <laughs> if you could put into words, what was it like going through last year trying to make a film during a COVID-19 uh, pandemic?
1: How can I describe it without going on a diatribe? Um, having to do a proof of concept via a early access program is probably the most painful thing I've done.
0: Yeah, Cine Tracer. Yeah. Not a fun process. It
1: was God. It was because although my it was fine for me because I'm the editor and I had also had the most powerful computer to in the in my uh, film uh, crew to actually to use Cine Tracer. Oh, the pro, the Collider process was terrible because we're all on Zoom and me streaming it like lagged everyone so. Everyone would be telling me, like, oh, put this there. And I'm trying, here I am trying to build the uh, town hall we used for our POC. Is POC stands for proof of, concept, proof of Concept. by the way. Sorry, there. yeah. Um, should have clarified that before I went. No, it's I all good. It's shat- fine. <laughs> POC, principal, is shouting all these random things. What does that even mean? Uh, but yeah, so building everything in city Tracer. Tracer is early access, and they keep, just before they launched it, uh, we. The specs changed a like, lot because before it was like you needed like X Y Z thing, which was like oh, it's pretty standard. That text about a couple years old and it's pretty good still, so all happy days. But then they changed it last second to basically be like high high end specs, and it was just like God, it was it was just not that great. And also it just took it it just took all the way the joy of filmmaking is like working with people in the flesh, because me it was basically a case of like me what everyone was watching me do everything to basically make it how it was going to end up looking like which is why it was it was bad and also good that we ended up doing the POC like live anyway like the, uh, it was like the, just before we did principal, because it was good to be able to back in the flesh and to experience that whole filmmaking process once more once we were able to you know collaborate again and not have to be like super apart from one another via zoom calls but the process of making a film during COVID, oh man, that was yeah. Because a...
0: using Cine Tracer it was like basically like trying to put together like a very crude, rough, animatic animation type yeah. film together, and just yeah, like you said, the program wasn't quite ready um, to be used in that in that fashion, and it was a uh, very stressful. It's, yeah,
1: yes, it's not. It's not like pre-visual, pre-vis pre-visualization programs aren't a thing that like, used in the industry like Oh of course they're a huge yeah. thing.
0: It's very important to the pre production process. Oh, yeah. yeah
1: I actually watched um was it there was a recent full that came out called occupation uh, I think it was rainfall what because my girlfriend started it as like an extra and we watched it and i and, like I remember months before watching a BTS thing of it and they had like this scene where someone's running through this destroyed bus and they show you the thing shot in real life and then they show you the pre actually they show you the previs first and it's very rough, like obviously it's a previous. It's not meant to be uh, one is to one, but it's meant like set up like how X Y Z shot would actually work out. It's a good way to map it out for your cinematographers and everything to be able to map out where things are going to go, which is good for that process. But for us, we had to like basically put it all together as best as we could, and using a program that wasn't that great, and we don't have millions of dollars to to build computers that can run it flawlessly. Mm. So it's a case of it was a very rough. It was a very rough because we just got thrown into it because we didn't really we were all like getting ready uh, like Feb It's like oh what's this uh, it's like a, is, is this illness going around we need, we need to like get on top of that and then we are like oh well now we're gonna sit in our homes for the next couple of months and we can't do anything and it's like well we still got to make we're still gonna get you to make films and then people were like nope I'm going and, and as you stayed we were like okay we're never gonna use this program at least we didn't pay for it because the cost of it is like 170 bucks or something so I was like nah I'm not doing I'm not copping that but yeah, we got Given to that was given to us by the film school, and the way they did that was like, because the program's done through Steam, so it's like a game distribution service, so you can buy games, play games. So they basically sold it that way, and this added a friend and then gifted us the game, which is good. But I would not pay money for it unless they optimize it because it's a good program, just runs terribly, mm. and for you to and for you to be able to do things. Uh, f- as fast as possible. You want your thing to be as optimized as possible. And if I'm paying 170 bucks for an early access program to help me pre-visualize pre- what my film's going to look like, I want it to be pretty good because 170 bucks is well nothing to sneeze at. But in the obviously in the in the industry, that's relatively cheap when you compare it to like you know buying an RE camera or something where it's like of course, yeah. But that's that's a really, that's hardware, not software. Mm. But yeah,
0: well that was one of the most interesting things that I think that the uni tried to do because obviously pre-visualization is a very crucial um, phase of pre-production that a lot of productions use. And I was actually all for it when they said that that's what they were going to do as a kind of a substitute to um, the Pre- lack of in-person filmmaking. And I was really for that. But then again, just the program unfortunately wasn't up to scratch and it just wasn't at a standard that we could use that was going to be beneficial for really anyone, um, which was a shame. But it's one of those things, it's like I feel like some of us Probably learnt a lot from that, and we can now take that onto future projects that yeah. um, you know will be beneficial for us because we have that previous experience of what happens when it goes wrong. Now, when something similar happens in a you know a real like another industry work, yeah. then you can deal with it. Then so it's
1: it's also a case of we didn't have, we didn't have enough time to properly learn the program. We just got like okay, so the timeline was like we had about two or three months to to do this like I don't even know like POC, but we got we given the program and basically got thrown in the deep end, saying, "Here you go." There's not really many tutorials out there, except from the guy who's making this, making this thing on YouTube. Who does, uh, who is put, puts out these YouTube videos, like talking about updates and uh, updates for the program, and also the thing and certain features that you can do X Y Z thing. But there were certain elements I wish that here we could do because the film, some of the uh, props that you can use to build your sets, are like grid based so you can place them in X Y Z locations. Otherwise, they'll like clip into objects so then you end up having to build your entire sets around these certain objects who so we can't just like freely place them anywhere you want them to it's if we had more time to like learn it, and the earth program was obviously better as i mentioned before we probably would have had a much better a much smoother experience but we just didn't have enough proper time to learn it and it was one of the things that like me and aiden would constantly like go back and forth on about like just <laughs> just shitting on the program and then even like on crossroads when they were doing their previs i think connor was in charge of doing that it was a, he had some choice words about it as well, but it was basically just the whole process kind of like drained everyone. Like from all the BTS and everything, like no no one was having a good time just like doing it remotely because we're all used to hanging out. Well, and filmmaking it, yeah. is
0: very much so a in-person practical experience. Yeah. And when you try and do it online, it just doesn't work. And that was one of the things that I felt like the pandemic really, was frustrating in that respect because you're trying to you know create a, a vision and make sure that it looks good for the screen but when you're doing that online it's very difficult to get all the points across but i, I feel like you know obviously we went through that process when everyone was in hard lockdown thankfully here in queensland in australia we dealt with the COVID situation quite well and we were fortunate enough to eventually get back out yeah. there get filming done get God. through post-production and and we finally got those films made. It took a lot longer than we wanted it to, but it was also, we finally got it done. It was also
1: a much shorter timeline because uh, P- we went to have done POC first semester and then we used that to, that whole first semester was supposed to be pre-production and then POC was done over the, actually no, was POC was done, I think it was first semester. Yeah, it was the first, and, yeah. And then over the holidays, we wouldn't have a holiday, it'd be, we would have been filming principal for film, Filming our principal and then we used the whole second semester for post, which was like Hell yeah, can't wait for that. And then, yeah, I, I all got thrown in the bin because, as we know, we didn't uh, we didn't do it in person until second semester. We didn't do anything with the holidays because we couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then we got back and then we basically squeezed POC and the POC cut of that. And then we, had, then we also squeezed that with principal, which is big, which for everyone, it's five days. And we basically had a really tight schedule where we had cases where we were like, have we got time for gear? Because these guys are also from at the same time. And they almost basically like double booked on different sets and what have you and all that jazz. And man, it was a very tight schedule. And I'm just surprised that how it ended up turning out the way it did, especially for like the TV studio stuff. Cause I heard they had a whole carton of eggs that they go through themselves. Cause uh, the whole for Apocalyptico, which is my uh, personal favorite of all the grad slates. Like aside from Love Club, I would discount that cause I worked on it and I think it's pretty good. I think Apocalyptico was really good as like, just for being the equivalent of Auntie Donna done by our cohort. And it's just like, no shits given. It's quite funny just from the way things come together. And that's why I wasn't overly miffed when I didn't get the award for like best. Set. I was like, Oh, I did a pretty good job. But then when I watched it, I was like, yep, that was pretty good. The edit, cause I heard that the edit was also rough on that initially, but then it all came together in the end, just cause they went a bit silly, but yeah, the process in COVID filming was very tense, but it was... I now can, that
0: it's all done, are you happy with the final product that's oh, been released?
1: Love it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a case of... Uh, if we had more time, I don't think I'd do anything to it though because I like, don't... Watching well, it I'll
0: say, I'm going to give you credit here. I'll, I'll give you a little... Um, I'll, I'll praise you now. Like I think it's very well edited. I think the film is definitely a very powerful and emotional story. So I, I think everyone was... Um, the whole crew was doing a really good job, and, and I'm, I'm very happy and proud yeah. of what you guys accomplished because it was a very good story and it was very well translated to screens. So congratulations yeah. on that. Oh,
1: thank you. It is, it is a very emotional one because uh, we had funny about that because during it was after the first it was after the rough cut screenings we had to show to our actually before that I walk into film school because uh, Anna and Freya were meeting me there, and Anna was uh, in tears. She was like breaking down because she didn't want it. she was so like worried because she just it was terrible because what well, it was it wasn't that great we had scenes that didn't really work the cut wasn't as good and she was obviously just really annoyed because she wasn't sure how we were going to fix it and later that so she went but she composed herself for the rough, for the uh, screening inside the theatre we left we spent we, we the next like couple hours she's in the suite with me she's like emotional she's like in tears and like inconsolable kind of thing and then i go out for lunch to go get some ham and cheese rolls from the bullies and i come back and i just hear josh we've saved the edit <laughs> and like what he's like we had issues with the uh, scene now uh, the scene before the final uh where she's sitting down looking to the mirror uh, I was, that was a there's also a was a hiking scene combined with that, that montage with the bike and uh i come back and yeah that's just like this epiphany like freya and Anna were just like in the suite by themselves. And I come back and yeah, it's like, Josh, we've saved it. I'm like what? It's like, oh, scene 18, we fixed it. And then they showed me just delete all the hiking scenes and like use this like acoustic track by, I think it was this uh, not so big uh, English uh, English songwriter, I forgot her name, but it was a beautiful track. And I was like, man, this scene hits much better now. Mm. And then we used that. That was like the tipping point for the film where we changed where we were taking it because it was this film that didn't really have a true like sense of we had direction but we didn't really know how we were going to get it there and then this that that day was the day we actually like knew we pivoted and we knew where we need to go and that was when we got the ball rolling on okay so we need to reshoot this scene and we need to reshoot that we're going to combine these two to get rid of that scene and XYZ thing so it all worked out well we it was -hmm. very a little bit tense because we had because we had Freya in the room as well because she was booking locations it was a bit tense because we were just like Hey, can we use this location? And, and hearing like, no, sorry, we can't use that. It was like a case of like, well, our list is getting shorter and shorter, place we can go to reshoot. And in the end, we ended up shooting like this industrial stats bowling alley, which was uh, and I wasn't happy with because well it wasn't that great looking, but worked out in the end. But mm. uh, well, that's yeah, yeah, again,
0: the whole process, it's very much so trial and error. And when you go through that, sometimes you've got to figure out along the way because um, nothing's ever perfect from day dot. And if it's perfect from the start, then obviously something's wrong because you can only go down. Oh. If you have a, a solid foundation, then you can slowly build yourself up yeah. and eventually find a great product. So uh, again, just for everyone um, who, uh, just a little reminder for everyone, I'm going to have a link in the description and on the uh, the podcast link um, with access to the website that takes you to all the Griffith Graduate 2020 films. And their password will be there as well. If It's gfs 2021 and uh, you'll really have, have access to all the films and you can check them out and uh, hopefully you guys uh, watch Love Club because I highly recommend it it's a solid 15 minute watch uh, if you've got the time
1: fun fact about that actually because you know how there's like uh, with all the slates there was like a time limit kind of thing mm-hmm. like even last year last year in year two we had the whole time limit for drama prod I've never I never look at the task sheet when I start I edit for the story's sake and then I go oh the time limit was actually XYZ eh <laughs> the story is fine like I think the time that this year was like 11-12 minutes something like that their love club was obviously 15 mm. and every every bit is needed for the story and the same was uh, with Auntie like everything that was there needed to be there for the story to make sense because we couldn't cut anything out to make to reach 7 minutes so we went up like 4 minutes over time and I was like eh because everyone else was like worrying about it. Like, I think me and Aiden both agreed like we just cut for the sto- sake of the story and the teachers also agree because if your story makes sense and it's good and it's not dragging on, they don't, you actually don't care about it. It's just that that's there to basically for those who don't put as much effort into making their film and just end up with this like sort of like half-assed story that's dragging out for the sake of time's sake. So it's like... Makes sense, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, now I want to quickly ask you because obviously you uh, work with Isaac Butterfield and uh, for those who don't know who Isaac <laughs> Butterfield is, um, if you don't know, I'm very shocked, because you should know. Uh, he is an Australian comedian who has a YouTube channel. He has over a million subscribers, and he's a really funny bloke, and he has no filter, and he's he makes some really entertaining content. And that is thanks to you, who has come on board and started working with him recently. You're actually the guy that uh, edits a lot of his videos for YouTube. Yeah. So what's he actually like in person? Because one of the things that I find Interesting about his videos is that he comes across very genuine in a way he likes to present himself with his opinions and stuff. Yeah, and it's very honest, but like you said, it likes to kind of provoke a lot of uh, people and get them upset. So, what's he like in person? Is he still a nice guy or is he kind of like
1: he's much he's actually a little bit different in person because uh, Isaac Butterfield he says himself in most of his videos like he, whenever like a serious topic happens, like I remember I think it was like just before I started, he. Made a video about this girl who then his audience went out and harassed because that's just how reactionary content works. Yeah. Then he had to to make a follow up video, but as himself, because he has two characters. There's Isaac Butterfield, which is the man that stands in front of the camera and does the performance. Yeah. And then you have Isaac Butterfield, who is the man behind everything, who's like making the jokes and whatnot. He has to like basically preface his video. The follow up, like, saying, Hey, this is that's not cool, you guys don't do that. Although, I all the video, although I made the video about her, you shouldn't be going out and harassing her. That's, that's just like a bit too far because it seems like things that were a bit too, um, bit spicy and they were just like not, not on things you don't do as a mm. regular. Person. That's just,
0: yeah, one of those things that is unfortunate about and the yeah. internet is that sort of you know cyber attacking and that kind of bullying nature. It's just one of those things that's part of human nature, I feel like, and you can't really, really stop it, unfortunately. Even though, you know, yeah, as a moral human, you would yeah, think, why would you do that? The only
1: thing you can do is, like, I don't know, there's like most commentary, like YouTube channels also do it. They're like, pre- 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 preface their video saying, like, this video is fair use. Do not harass, chase, chase down, dox, whatever. The people who I talk about in the video, this is strictly for like commentary and critique, XYZ. Yep. So that's like the only way you can really cover your bases there. Unfortunately, I doesn't do that because he just makes videos to like... He's a comedian, yeah, he's... To,
0: to, to be fair. Like, that's one of the things that I don't like about this whole woke culture and stuff is that I feel yeah, like yeah, so yeah. many comedians are the target yeah. of this sort of cancel culture. He, he but so it. many don't people don't understand what I, the job of a comedian is. It's to try and make you laugh. And sometimes they'll say the most ridiculous, crazy, product, provocative things. Yeah. In search of laughter, and that's their oh. job. And so many people misinterpret that as being gospel, and they think that they're saying it and actually meaning it. And that's where I feel like so many people get mis- it's, misinterpreted it's what funny, he's trying to say.
1: It's funny you mention that because uh, recent I say recently it was like four ish months ago. He got uh, was it? He got chased down on like Instagram or Twitter or something about one of his jokes in his stand special. That it's about the Christ Church. Uh, Massacre, which is, well, obviously it's a terrible thing because, of course, yeah, but he made a joke about it. And the uh, on this was in his comedy special, right? Yeah, that was in the yep. special that I haven't watched it personally, but I've been mean to get around to like buying it and then watching because after the, watching the joke, I was like, man, this is this is a, although it's like it's a funny as
0: fuck yeah. joke, I'm it's, not gonna lie, it, it's really so, good. So, you know, the joke I'm talking about, yeah, I've seen it, yeah,
1: yeah, what did the rounds, I'm just like, it's a good joke, but obviously. It's meant to be meant to be served as this, as this joke which just like a sledgehammer, like, oh, it's kind of like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. But it's this funny thing, it's but then the internet didn't like the obviously the Muslim side of like Twitter and Instagram went after him, try went after his venues, try to get him cancelled and X Y Z. But unfortunately, but the good but I say the good thing about Isaac is he isn't built on a platform where he can really be cancelled because his entire base is built around offensive comedy, so. It's not like he's pulling a Shane Dawson where people have found videos where he's like will where he's like either joking about it or like wanting to like I'm not sure if you remember there's like a whole Shane Dawson saga where it's like he made a joke like, about like wanting to like be with uh wasn't was I was name like it was Willow Smith like back when she was like twelve or something like oh, okay it, 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 oh, so I'm not yeah. super familiar with that story. Oh, all right. but, but, but yeah it's like because like, you know how Shane Dawson, he's like this YouTuber's got this platform where he's like this. He's the person. He's a people's person. He goes and interviews these people who have gone through some under fire and it basically gets their side of the story. He's like meant to come across like this, like genuine character kind of thing. And then obviously this content from years from years prior, back when the back when YouTube was just a cesspit of absurd content. Everyone's just s- s- yelling out slurs and calling people xyz thing and everyone's just like mean to one another because the internet but the whole saga behind that but that's, that's the thing about like isaac though he's like base is built around it he's not like he hasn't got a fan he hasn't got a fan base who are like wholesome content people they're all there to see to hear isaac rant and rave and talk about things in a in a different light, like true blue, Yet, yeah, no kind of thing. Well, that's
0: what I want to add on to that because obviously he's very much so Australian and that's why I feel like so many (laughs) Australians love him for it because he's just, he's yeah, true blue Aussie for sure. But this is one of the things that I find most fascinating about him and why I enjoy a lot of his content is because he addresses a lot of these things And yes, he does it in a quite insulting, but in a very comedic way. Again, he's trying to make a lot of people laugh because it's just lighthearted humor. Yeah. But what I find really interesting, and this isn't just about Isaac Butterfield, I feel this is about a lot of comedians especially, is that they're so often the voice of reason when addressing these various social issues and I'm just curious to get your perspective on that. Why do you think that comedians who are often trying to make a joke or they have a, a warped perspective on looking at society, but are often making a lot of sense with the logic that they use and the things they say? Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's because comedians are seen as this way to convene a point. Like, humor is one of the best ways to, like, talk, to get a discussion going. Like, you can make, if you want, let's just say you want to talk about a serious topic, you can, because, like, you can just joke about it as well, and then it gets that ball rolling on the conversation. Like you can joke about it, and it enables you to, in, to talk about it in a way that isn't just like getting straight to that point. Because not everyone, not everyone wants to have that conversation about X Y Z point, whether whether it be like you know racism, police brutality, X Y Z topic. You can joke about it, and it starts that ball rolling because you because like it's a, it's an easier way to ease into the conversation. And of course, comedians that's their job to make you laugh, so you can talk about serious topics that are in that are a little bit sensitive that no one wants to really talk about. The good old, how was it? Everyone knows, everyone knows all the topics I'm talking about, like, you know, terrorist attacks or whatever. Yep. So you can joke about it in a way that gets people talking about X, Y, Z thing because it's, it's a softer way to begin a conversation than instead of just going slamming your fist on the table and going, I want to talk about this thing with you and I'm not going to put any humor on it. I'm just going to go straight to the point and I want you to talk to me about it like you really care because it's a way to like, get people to engage who aren't going to engage to someone who's just going to come and want to discuss it without trying to be humorous because not everyone wants to sit down and debate. People want to like sit down and have a laugh. And if you hear about it, you're more likely to, in a a way that's like not as harsh, you'll be more likely to engage with that content. I agree. So Yeah.
0: It's one of those things I feel like, yeah, like you, like you said, humor is a good way to kind of just break the ice and look at a topic from a different perspective and, and again, search for that laughter and kind of release some endorphins and, and have a good time. And, and that's what I find interesting about comedians because I'm very much so a proponent of, of freedom of speech. I think as long as you're not inciting violence or doing anything like that, I think you should be allowed to say whatever you want, even if it's mean, terrible, heinous things that you're saying. I think you should be allowed to say that. Especially within the comedian world Is that I think you should be say able to say Any joke that you want However terrible it is As long as it's funny That's yeah. the only rule In comedy As long as it's funny It's Good as gold And I think as That's what a lot of people Fail to understand About the comedy world And comedians and stuff Is that All they're trying to do Is just have a laugh And yeah. get a You know Whether it's in a big ass theatre Or you know In Isaac's case Via YouTube They're just trying to build an audience And and have some fun. Yeah. And when people misinterpret that it's unfortunate because again, the comedy world all they're trying to do is have a laugh and you know, sometimes those topics can be controversial, but again, sometimes through comedy is where you find common ground with a lot of people. And that's what I found interesting about his content is that he, you know, finds common ground, says some logical things and then puts a comedic spin on it. That makes you laugh. So yeah. That's why I've. That's because when I first came across his content, that was one of the things that stood out to me was that he was saying all these controversial things, but then he'd put a joke into it and then say something logical as well. So that combination of using a logical perspective, you know, t- taking talking about these uh, controversial topics and then putting a comedic spin on all of it. That's why I think he's quite successful yeah. at what he does and why he has such a huge following on YouTube.
1: I think. It comes, I think it also comes to the fact he's like he just he comes as a straight talker. He, exactly. Yeah, he talks like an he talks like an everyman, basically, because he, he doesn't speak like he knows everything. He comes into it like, oh, I'm just like I'm just your everyman who like maybe like did like five seconds of research to like find this to, to a point. But it's a case of he just talks about like he's your av- average Joe. He's not trying to hit you with like studies from the Bureau of Statistics or anything, unless like of course it's relevant to the topic. But it's a case of he talks just like. A regular person would talk to another person. It's another case of he's talking down to you, making you seem like you're not as smart because he's throwing big words at you. No, he's just like talking to you like he's a someone you'd be on the street. Mm.
0: And that's one of the things that, uh, again, I want to give you a slight praise here because one of my criticisms of his early videos was that he would say all these things and, and like present all these facts, but then he didn't like present any like sort of source or anything. Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed since your time as, as his editor is that whenever he says a source or whatever, he tends to then put that on screen and then you can kind of say, okay, that's where he's getting his information from. He's saying this quote from wherever. And I think it gives a little bit more legitimacy to what he's saying instead of just being some angry Australian that who was, rants on the internet.
1: That was one of those things that I, I was also like a little bit annoyed by because... When I watch his content like he would say something. and I'm like, oh, that's cool and all, but I'd also watch um, another guy called uh, Friendly Joys. Most people, most Australians would know who Friendly Joy is. It's a case of um, he would put he would link his sources because his editor would also put a screen on because he also has an editor who I follow on Instagram. He's not bad, but yeah, he he puts his sources up because well, since Jordy's talks about politics and other things, you kind of need your sources. Mm. Unlike Isaac, who's like talking about like. Feminisms and vegans and stuff, which isn't like as big of an issue. Fuck cyclists, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but uh, th- he. That's the thing. He, if you have your sources on, people are more likely to like believe what you're saying, and also, and they also might start on a dialogue of, ah, oh, that's where you got it from. Then you might start a ball rolling, doing their own research.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah.
1: If if you get someone, t- if you get the ball rolling on that, because Isaac's word isn't gospel, obviously, but it's a case of we need. Uh, get the ball rolling on what's being said because if Isaac can say some outlandish things and I can back up with the source but you can go obviously done research and you can provide a counter argument hell you can give him free content if you want to just by like hey man I see that I see you said this this is actually that you can make your own make a YouTube video and you can then set you can then put on YouTube then someone will find that sent to Isaac and then guess what now you're on Isaac's channel because surprise surprise that's how he makes content just being somebody who says something someone makes a video about it then he responds Mm. that's like one of his latest guys is like some guy from Wales who's saying Australia isn't real and ever, and basically every video he's ever made since I went through his channel <laughs> <laughs> every video that that guys uh, Ragman has ever, ever done like recently has all basically just been about saying how Australia isn't real or calling out Isaac to fight him and it's just like it's, it's interesting how some people can just like dedicate it like once Isaac's like Isaac Keynes on it, like made a video about it. He's just like been trying to provoke him and get his attention every, every, ever since. Cause it's like I want he wants more of that attention, or it's just a case of like most people on YouTube just want to provoke and get get a reaction. And then lo and behold, you get a reaction from a guy who's got one point six mil subs, mm. who's got who's who's coming at you for saying Australia isn't real yeah it's it's funny (laughs) Um,
0: I say as someone who is obviously working in the film industry as an editor and and someone who works in post-production and obviously does uh, videos for YouTube as well uh, I want to put an end on this conversation by asking you what are some tips um, for uh, editors out there what some of the things that you would say are key things that you would suggest uh, if you wanted to get into editing and start your uh, start as a career or even just making your own videos at home as like a hobby or whatnot what are some tips
1: Um, first point uh, if you it's going to sound dumb but download some recording software because if you want to ever practice your editing you can get an easy start there by maybe doing long form documentaries about your favourite video games like for me I've got my own personal program I've been working on for months I've been putting on the back burner because I've been flat with my own work for being for Isaac and for my new company that I'm with called Verve Um, it's like basically about uh, my favorite, one of my favorite video games and how it's not got as much love and I want to go do like a deep dive into why XYZ element and it works and like basically it draws inspiration from like another, from like other channels who do long form sort of documentaries on YouTube or YouTube documentaries which is not really super long like maybe like half hour 45 which is long for a YouTube video but for a documentary it's about, that's ah, average but it's a case of, that's not like one of my passion projects alongside a few other things but yeah, the big that was like one of my things of like getting into it. I used to like make YouTube videos for like uh, custom zombie forums. when I was playing those back in the day, and that was like my end to like making YouTube videos and practicing editing because I was like, I like video games. I like to edit, just record the footage, make my own videos, put it out there. That's awesome. And because I was always because I was always watching YouTube, I was being surrounded by new inspirations. And because I've obviously I take inspiration from. Uh, was the previously mentioned like phase montages stuff, and also like Edgar Wright's whole like filmography kind of thing, where everything mm-hmm. just basically cut to action, or in the case of Baby Driver, cut to a track done for the choreography, which is, oh, man, such a, I love. It. <laughs> but yeah, big tip, but big tip is always like download some download recording software. It sounds like irrelevant, but you're gonna want to have that so you can then practice your editing. You can practice like cutting different things together like hell you can like splice it from different scenes like if you want to cut on action let's just say like you're playing some first person shooter or something you can like cut between like different scenes on like the reload of a gun or something or cut to a beat it's just like all about how you want to put it together and then if you enjoy that enough then maybe from there on you can take that to go oh maybe i should actually do film because uh, before i even did film i was doing multimedia because i was i wanted to get into animation and do first person animations for video games i wanted to like Get into the modding scene and be big and work in a studio X Y Z, but I learned coding wasn't for me. But whilst I was doing that, I was doing film electives and doing a bunch of like just electives during that, and that's what inspired me to then just go. You know what? I might as well commit to uh, film as a whole thing alongside uh, being in an exam for a coding class that I watched someone's computer crash before I could save their work. That was that was another that was another reason why I just went see ya because it was like the epiphany moment. But yeah. Uh, first, do that. Then, obviously, next next tip would be uh, find a good crew to to deliver you the def- deliver you what you want. Because you, unfortunately, as an editor, you're at the mercy of the cinematographer and what they're shooting, and the director and their direction. And you got to get them to. And if they're good people and they can come together and bring you stuff that's good. Like for me, I've I worked with, uh, Lockie Marshall and Anne McGuckin. Uh, so Amber and oh man couldn't I couldn't, ask for, couldn't have asked for better no, director cinematographer could have asked for a better sound designer and recorder stuff at, at times called Zali just a good crew to work with you didn't find your people because unfortunately for me like during my first year at film school I got off on the wrong foot with a lot of people and no one wanted to really work with me until they got to know me in second year because I wrote myself off by being a bit of a silly boy on the Facebook page and it was like no one wanted to touch me with a 10 foot pole but you basically gotta find your crew and establish yourself as someone who's reliable and can do it and can deliver what you need to do. Because alongside being able to be a good editor, you need to be a good person. Because film's collaborative, and if you're a bad person, no one's gonna want to come near you. Even if you're the best editor on this planet, in this galaxy, no one's gonna want to come near you if you're just gonna be this asshole. Because mm-hmm. we're humans. We want we want to like just be a well obviously, some people are a bit less approachable, but it's okay. So if you want to approach people. And be approachable because otherwise no one's gonna to wanna to work with you, talk to you, hang out with you, approach you with ideas, maybe then come to you in the future. But that's all just- no,
0: honestly, I echo that those sentiments actually. Yeah, that's very important part, and filmmaking is very much so a collaboration with many different people, peoples with varying walks of life. And yeah, that's I, I definitely agree with what you're saying there, and you know, it's it's definitely an important part. Yeah. Josh? Thank you very much. That concludes the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. (laughs) And again, that's it, honestly. For those who are future editors out there, hopefully you guys learned some some stuff. And uh, yeah, Josh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Pleasure's all mine. That's it, everyone. See ya.